and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lasley. All right, today we're going to talk about uh, keeping track of the news in air power and uh, current events and dealing with the sometimes overwhelming amount of stuff that's coming out related to the air power uh, industry uh, and military news and contractor news and things like that. So to deal with some of this, uh, we are joined by Valerie Insina, who is the air warfare reporter for Defense News. Uh, she's previously worked uh, the Navy Congressional Beats for Defense Daily after about three years as a staff writer for National Defense Magazine and also worked as an editorial assistant for Tokyo Shimbun's Washington Bureau. So welcome, Valerie. Hey, guys. It's so nice to be with you You here today and talk about air power. Well, let's uh, let's get started, Valerie. Tell us a little bit about yourself then. So I cover air and space for defense news, mostly U.S. Air Force type of stuff, but I dabble a little bit in the Navy, Marine Corps, and then international type of news. And we really kind of focus on technology, policy, budget. Um, besides that, I'm just a big nerd and <laughs> aviation is just sort of like one aspect of my nerdiness. Yeah, that's pretty much me, like kind of a big loser. <laughs> well, before we get to the aviation aspect of your work, which is, you know, kind of why we got you here today, but let's talk about what you what drew you to journalism in the first place and then maybe a little bit about how you became a defense reporter. Sure. Um so it, it's so funny whenever people ask me about this I have to kind of own up to the fact that my career is kind of a mistake. Um, so I, when, when I was in high school, I took journalism, like a newspaper class and I was really bad at it. And I was good at a lot of different things. And it really ticked me off that I was bad at writing news stories and wasn't making good grades. So I worked really hard and eventually really learned to like it and get somewhat good, I guess, at it. Uh, and then when I was thinking about, you know, what do I want to do with my life? I'm just like, oh, you know, I want to travel. I want to write. I want to talk to people. Hey, journalism kind of makes sense. So just kind of decided to go with that. I ended up falling more, more in love with it. And then with defense reporting, it was sort of the same thing where um, after college, I moved out to D.C. and worked for a Japanese publication where I got to kind of dabble on a lot of different beats. I got to go hang out at the State Department and do the press briefings there, go to the Pentagon, do the gaggles there. And over time, I just really realized how interesting the defense world was. It was everything that I liked about foreign policy, all of the international stuff without the BS or a, a little bit different BS, I guess I should say. Just people were a little bit more forthright with information and I found the technology aspect of it so cool. So then when I started looking for jobs, I, I started looking specifically for defense reporting jobs. All right, cool. So besides the inherent awesomeness of air power, what kind of drew you to the, to the side of aviation uh, and air power defense reporting? Honestly, I think it was just the awesomeness of it, the inherent <laughs> awesomeness, as you put it. I mean, it's just so cool. I, you know, when you really think about the things that we've accomplished in the you know century that we've been flying aircraft, it's it just is absolutely amazing. And military is always 
on the forefront of the technology development, or at least the cool technology development, who really cares about commercial stuff. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer than it's just really freaking cool, but that's just sort of how I think about it. Yeah, I, I can live with that. So you write one to four breaking news stories a day. And for everyone listening in, I've got to tell you, that is a lot of writing over the course of, of the year. So, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but how do you do it? Mm. So I wrote about that much when I was at Defense Daily um, a couple years ago. At Defense News, we have, thankfully, a little bit slower of a pace, um, so usually about a story of a, a story a day. But I don't know. It, it really is hard to keep up with the pace of, of news, especially now. And all I can say is that when you have to write four stories a day, you know, not all of them are going to be complete. Not all of them are necessarily going to be the most full-fledged, deeply resourced story that you've ever written. And I think news news consumers kind of forget that too. You know, they'll sometimes say things like, well, why didn't you include this thing or this thing? It's like, well, I really wish I could have, but I can't write an encyclopedia on this topic right now, just because there's so much other stuff happening. So it is a really big challenge. And it's something that I struggle with all the time. I'm curious if that's something that uh, you deal with a lot that terms of people getting encyclopedic, because as historians, I know Brian and I have faced that sometimes where People might criticize our work by, because we don't go into enough detail about some particular technological black box component or something like that. Or, you know, how many fan blades are in this engine or something like that. Are those the kind of things that you deal with as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. Or people, you know, wondering why I don't, why I don't use technical terminology. Like I, I got kind of uh, criticized in a reader email some, some dude emailed me and was like, why do you keep saying the 10th batch of F-35s? It's a low rate initial production lot. And that's how you should refer to it. And it's like, ah, oh, dude, like I really, no, no one outside of the defense community is going to really know what that is. It's just so jargony. So I, I think that sort of problem you know, people, people really care about this topic and they're very passionate about their space, like whatever it is that they touch in this world. So I do kind of get it why people are like, oh, well, why didn't you include this? You know, why you totally messed up by not including this factoid. And they're not writers. They're usually engineers and scientists and it's just different, you know, you know, for, you know, engineers, they need to learn about the trade space of writing, man. Like (laughs) (laughs) I can't throw everything in. We got to make trades. Well, and I think that's a interesting aspect to your work is that you're being read by historians, you're being read by engineers, but you're also to a certain degree kind of writing for the layman as well, right? Yeah, I, we kind of do touch all of those audiences. I, I hope that my work can be read by the layman and understood, but I'm also, I, I'm very satisfied with how many people that are in this space re- read my writing and say, oh, you've got it. Or we really appreciate that you took the time to report on this thing. That's really cool to me. You know, there's an interesting book out there called The Death of Expertise. 
And it essentially says that with the rise of the internet, anyone can go on and look anything up and can kind of come away with a cursory reading of something and begin to question the experts. And, you know, I think I already know the answer to this and we've kind of touched on it, <laughs> but how often does that happen to you? Um, it does happen a lot, but maybe less than you would think compared to some other reporters in different areas. I feel like political reporters have it really tough. You know, commercial tech reporters have it really more tough than I do because the aviation and defense world is so knit. And once you kind of establish credibility, you have a bunch of people that are willing to go to bat for you. So it, it's, it's a very nice community to be a part of. But every once in a while, you do get someone that just wants to start a fight because they think they know more than you. A couple months ago, I posted some like Space Force related story and some random dude didn't follow me. I have no idea how he like ever got to my Twitter. But he saw the, a post that I made where I basically made the point that U.S. Space Command and Space Force were different and we still had to wait on Congress to establish a Space Force. And this guy was like, no way, like you're totally wrong. Trump already has established a Space Force. And it's, it's like no matter what I could say, I couldn't convince him that he was wrong, even though like I was like, no, here's all the reporting I've done. Here are the stories I've broken about this. I, I literally was the person that pushed this news out into the world. And at one point, he was like, well, fine then, if you're so good, why does everyone say that this is just Trump being stupid when Space Force is actually a proposal that we should be debating? And I'm like, I've here's this tweet thread. I've actually argued that too. <laughs> you know, some people, they just don't... <laughs> They, they want to be right. They don't want to learn. They don't want to discuss or debate. You can't do anything about that, though. Well, I think that kind of brings up uh, an interesting aspect to what we do. And for any of our listeners that don't know, and I doubt there are many of them, but Mike, Valerie, and myself, we are all active on Twitter on the daily. So, you know, is Twitter where you get the most pushback? Or is it in the comment section of your articles? You know, although I'm sure you've been told never read the comments. I actually don't read the comments of my article. And I think I think we're probably I get more more feedback on Twitter for stuff. But yeah, I guess that's probably where I see the most pushback from from people. But actually, most of the time, it's positive things and not negative things, even though like I complain a lot about people being annoying. I should probably complain less about it, actually. If you're not on Twitter to complain, I, I don't know why you're on Twitter <laughs> in the first place. But uh, I was so I, I was going to say, actually, like, well, I mean, if I if I wasn't good at complaining, I wouldn't be a journalist, right? <laughs> So let's let's circle back to the journalism aspect. Uh, kind of sure. walk us through your day. So usually, you know, I'll wake up, feed my cat, shower, look at the news. Usually I've got, you know, news open in my phone as soon as I wake up and I'm scrolling through. And then from there, every day is just kind of different and weird. Because um, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen, right? So, you know, one day I might be down at the Hill for a bunch of hearings, or I might be downtown in D.C. to meet with sources. I might be in the Pentagon just trying to chat people up and go to briefings or interviews, or I might be at my office talking to my coworkers and annoying them and not getting any work done. So speaking speaking about your coworkers, I'm going to give you the opportunity here. So. Uh, like I said, I think I think most everyone follows Mike and I and Balloons to Drones on Twitter. Uh, and if you don't, you should all follow Valerie. Valerie, who else is out there in the Twitter sphere? Oh, that that they should follow. 
you know, your coworkers, people you interact with on the daily? Sure. Uh, um, just aviation or broader? Uh, go just start. Give me a list. Okay. Well, I, I got to say my coworkers, you should definitely follow them. Jen Jetson knows literally everything that's happening with AV, Army Aviation. She is the best. Um, Aaron Mehta, he had my job before I had my job. Now he's our Pentagon correspondent and he's really smart. He writes a lot about international sales and international um, arms sale policy, drones, stuff like that. Uh, Kelsey Atherton, he works for our, our sister publication, C4ISRNet. And so he writes a lot about just cool technology, EW drones, AI, all of that cool stuff that goes into the aircraft that we find freaking awesome. David Larder, he does the Navy stuff. He's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's awesome. Um, besides that, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. And I got to throw out some love for Joe Gould, who's our congressional, uh, our congressional reporter, because he, you know, I can't be everywhere. And a lot of times he will be the person up on the hill writing stories about the interplay between Congress and the Air Force or Congress and Navy aviation or something like that. So he's also a great person to follow. Otherwise, like my friends, right? Oriana Pollock, she's great. Marcus Weisgerber. We've got such a, the, the defense reporter circle has such a great group of reporters. I would just say follow all of us. We all work really hard to get scoops. Yeah, and they all do a good job. I'm curious if you think there's, you know, major differences or maybe major similarities between the defense reporting uh, kind of group versus kind of a maybe normal news reporting. What are the things that are unique to your job that you wouldn't find maybe in a traditional journalism type of job? Huh. That's a good, that's a good question. I think one thing that stood out to me when I was, you know, a young reporter in DC trying to figure out what I wanted to cover. One thing that stood out to me is how friendly the Pentagon press corps was and how there was a sense of camaraderie between everyone. I think that's really special. And I don't think you get that among White House correspondents or State Department correspondents so much. There is like a real friendliness and Let's go out and hang out and have beers. And a lot of us are friends outside of work. I think I think that's really different. I think maybe the other thing that is different than other sectors is the level of um, hmm, how to say this. Maybe maybe not the level of access because there are a lot of other types of journalism where you 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 get access, but there are just so many different players in defense and it, there's so much money involved and there's so many stakeholders, there are really a lot of people that you can reach out and get information from, which makes it a lot of fun. Um, I imagine your readership is really diverse uh, from you know, military folks to contractors to just people like us that are just interested in it because we're nerds. Um, <laughs> who would you see kind of as your primary audience or who maybe, maybe there's a better way of phrasing it, who do you think should be reading you most, if you know I mean, what I, I mean? Think, yeah, I think, I think you kind of hit on it, though, is like we kind of try to try to get the audience of people that are people that have some knowledge and interest in defense issues, people that work in Pentagon acquisition or people that help forge the budget or people that are just really into like the nerdy technology or the nuts and bolts of defense policy. I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be people that are professionals in this space, but people that are enthusiastic about learning more about it. Hmm. 
I'm also curious, and this is changing gears a little bit, but kind of what your methodology is like as a historian, you know, I know how to look up sources or go to archives or whatever, but I would not know the first thing to do to talk about, you know, current events or how to build sources and those kinds of things. What is your methodology like uh, when you maybe started out, but also kind of now that you've been doing it for a while, what kind of processes do you follow? So I think every journalist is a little bit different here. I know some reporters who are very much like FOIA-based journalists that they can, they they know how to, you know, do a Freedom of Information Act request for, for documents and appeal the system and do everything that they need to, to get these awesome, you know, hundreds of pages of information that they're able to like weave into amazing, amazing reporting that would have never come to light otherwise. For me, like, uh, I think my reporting is based a lot more on relationships. I, I think I probably work more through my network of sources, just because I, I don't know, maybe that's just more who I am. And I like to talk to people rather than like be in front of a computer and trying to do the more data centric type of reporting. So that's, that's really how I start off is just, you know, having a curious mind and asking questions of people and trying to get my head around a topic. And a lot of times, you know, because you do have these relationships established, people, you know, kind of will elbow you in the ribs and be like, hey, you should be paying attention to this or here's this document you're not supposed to have, which is awesome. Everyone (laughs) should do that to me. Please send me, please send me your documents. Uh, you know, it's really encouraging to hear, you know, that it is so relationship based. And you were talking about how things are more friendly than one might expect, you know, with with the military. And I don't know, I'd just be curious to see you expand on that a little bit and just kind of talk about what it feels like day in and day out to hang out with these folks. Or if you notice, you know, certain groups being more withholding than others. I'm thinking about like mil- like different military services, but also like contractor companies versus uh, the armed services, things like that. Do they all feel kind of different when you interact with them or are they all pretty open and friendly? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, they all They all feel extremely different from each other. And it's sort of, it's up to so many different things, you know, the wider culture of the service maybe or even just down to who is leading it at the time or the pressure they're getting from the, you know, whoever the president is or what the administration is trying to do. But yeah, you definitely do feel those cultural differences. Um, for example, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was just trying to get information about the mission capability rates for, for the F-35. You know, Mattis said that he wanted to see the readiness rates or the mission capability rates for the F-35, A, B, and C all go up to 80%, you know, by the end of this year. And so I just kind of did a checkup, you know, asking the Air Force, Marine Corps, and Navy, hey, you know, how close are you guys to being there? Do you think you're going to make it? And it's kind of funny, and I don't say this to badmouth the Navy or the Air Force, but they sort of like didn't really know. They were like, oh, I don't know. We kind of need to reach back to the JPO or have you talked to to OSD about this? And, you know, they kind of were a little bit more squirrely, but call up the, the, the Marine Corps. They're like, okay, ma'am, we'll get you the information. And then like three hours later, they're like, I know we're 30 minutes late, later than your deadline, but here's what, <laughs> here's the statement. I'm like, thanks guys. The Marine Corps is kind of maybe easier to work with sometimes. You know, you mentioned who's leading the service. And one of the things I found, you know, going back into archives and especially into things like 
personal papers and diaries is a lot of these, you know, historical figures who I've researched kind of come off as real people. And I think that's also probably the case uh, with what you do, because you do interact with the secretary of the Air Force, the chief of staff of the Air Force. And so if you could just take a minute to talk to them or talk about them kind of kind of as people and not as not as figureheads, as it, as it were. Oh, about the the secretary of the Air Force and chief of staff of the Air Force. Sure, I, I just I threw them out there, but oh, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to do. I mean, you do spend a, a, a decent amount of time with them, but you know, as a journalist, you you get the sense that you're only seeing you're only seeing the surface of like what they want to present, and I don't. That's not that's true of any leader. I think. For those two, their passion is definitely palpable. It's very evident, but I can't say that I know who, you know, that I have a firm grasp on either of them as as people. Although you do kind of, you pick up things like, and maybe not, maybe not with those two so much, but um, sometimes like just, just whoever, whatever official that you talk to more often than not, you, you get in the habit about talking about weird life things like there's one three star where for a while whenever we would see each other he would ask me how wedding planning was going because I was months out from getting married and I would always tell him how horrible it was and he'd always be like "Mm, you should just you should just get hitched you should just go to the courthouse and elope just every time like this is this is like the conversation we'd have and then I'd be like okay so how's your granddaughter and he would pull out pictures and then we'd like get down to business to like do the interview or whatever else but like you do kind of have like relationship stuff like that develop where you do get to know each other or on a more um intimate basis but there's always there's always like a wall up you can't you you always know as a journalist you have to verify information. You can't necessarily trust anyone just because you feel like you like them as a person. I don't know if we'll leave this in or not, but since you mentioned the F thirty five, I feel compelled to ask: uh, What are your thoughts on it? Yay or nay? Is it a good or bad airplane? Oh God, I, I can't answer that because <laughs> I have to write about it. At, you know, it's mm-hmm. just like, and I'm I'm not a pilot. You know, like I'm not an expert. All the pilots that I've talked to that fly it, they love it. At the same time, it's evident there are still a lot of problems that need to be worked out. It's very evident that we spent a lot of money, probably way too much money on this aircraft than we should have. But I, it's, it's, for me, it's such a complicated topic. Every time someone <laughs> is like, is it good or does it suck? I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. Like, uh. Well, it's, it's really interesting that you say complicated topic, because in another one of our episodes, we had a similar conversation and everyone wants to kind of boil things down to the lowest common denominator. So it always ends up, well, what would win in a dogfight, the F-35 or a MiG-29? And you kind of oh go, my God, kill me. Kill me. <laughs> <laughs> it is so much more complicated than that. Right, right. Yeah, I... <sighs> I hate those type of conversations. I get I get why people are interested in that. I don't think it's irrelevant. Like I'm not one of those people who subscribes to the idea that oh we're just we're beyond that now. You know we're beyond a, do- a dogfight. Although who cares what I think personally? You know like I'm a journalist. Who cares what I think? But at the same time, I I wish that people would ask 
different questions sometimes that they would evaluate things a little bit more broadly or at least tried to understand like, okay, so what is this weapon system actually trying to do? And is it doing it properly? Not so much as like, oh, it's it doesn't dogfight as good as the F-22. It sucks. Like, well, you know, they're designed to do different things. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things. And I don't know what it is. I mean, I've had these conversations and I think everyone kind of wants to get into that 1v1 turning dogfight because maybe on a certain level, I don't know, that's more interesting or sexier than talking about intercept angles and angle of attack and 4VX or whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. when, when, mm-hmm. when you, yeah, when you get down to just the 1v1 man versus man, and that kind of goes back into something Mike's a little passionate about the, the Knights of the Sky, right? Because everyone wants to pretend that that's really what aerial combat's all about. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what happens when air forces are able to field, you know, swarming drones or attritable drones? Like, how does that change things? Like, are you going to be dogfighting the exact same way then in, you know, 1v1 or 2v2 formation type of stuff? It, it just seems like, you know, it's a, it's an important discussion to still have, but there's got to be we got to broaden this a little bit. Like we, we need like a, the Picasso of air warfare to like <laughs> make this a little bit less traditional because I, I just, I think technology is advancing so quickly. Yeah, no doubt about technology advancing quickly. And uh, with regards to air warfare and technology change, here's a plug for uh, Munchfino's book, Tiger Check. If you don't have it, go get it. Uh, a great look at how technology and air warfare changes over time. No, I don't have that. <laughs> I, I wasn't have to I, look that up. <laughs> I wasn't speaking to you in, in particular. <laughs> that that was I, I was speaking out into the ether. Like I wasn't giving you a reading. Assignment. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. But I was like, huh, maybe I should read that. <laughs> All right, I, I want to ask my last question. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, so it seems that cats have become this season's must-have. For the air power enthusiasts, <laughs> our host Mike has Barry, uh, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel has Goose, and you have Vlad the Impaler. Is that correct? That is correct. So, so tell me, <laughs> tell me why cats are like the must-have accessory for all air power enthusiasts right now. Oh, I think it's because we all have great taste. <laughs> um, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I. Cats are just cool. I feel like cats are sort of like pilots where they're a little bit lame, but they're also very cool. Like, I don't know. We're, we're going to do an entire episode on how cats are like pilots in the future. That'll be my next book. You know, I'll, I'll take I'll take that back. <laughs> pilots are definitely not as cool as cats. I, don't, I mean, like cats are so independent. You can't, you can't tell them what to do necessarily. They show their affection in, you know, strange ways and on their, on their own terms. But I like the fact that they are hunters and they can be really playful and active. Cats just get a bad rep. Like, you know, everyone says dogs are friendlier and more playful and they do more stuff. I don't know. My cat just killed a spider for me. That was pretty awesome. I wasn't going to kill that spider. I was scared. (laughs) Um, I don't know, but Captain Marvel's goose also like can eat aliens alive. My cat hasn't exhibited that power yet, but I think, I think he probably can do that. 
in nerd moment, it's probably important to point out that Goose from Captain Marvel is in fact not a cat and is a flurkin. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like how Crookshanks and Harry Potter was not a cat. He was a, what is it? A, a, not a nargle? It was something weird. But basically, I, he was some magical creature that could sense whether a person was good or whether they sucked. <laughs> this is getting way off topic because I happen to be re- <laughs> I happen to be reading The Prisoner of Azkaban with my nine year old right now, and that that Crookshanks has come up in conversation more than one occasion. Yeah, because Crookshanks knew Crookshanks knew about. You've, you've read it before, right? Like, I'm not spoiling oh, the Prisoner oh, of yeah, no, 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 right? no. Yeah, no, many, many times, yeah. I mean, Crookshanks knew about Peter Pettigrew, so, you know, you, you got to trust your cats. Cats are awesome. Or, or cat-adjacent, you know, creatures or aliens. Y'all just out-nerded me because I haven't read any of the Harry Potters, but I did have to pause Star Trek The Next Generation to take this call. And uh... I am overly excited, and I hope this makes it into the final cut of the show, that we have covered the F-22, the F-35, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, the Harry Potter universe as well. This, this has been great. Well, um, you guys you guys actually, what I was doing before I got on this phone call with you, I literally, so last night, and <laughs> you guys probably want to get off the phone and I don't care, <laughs> but um, last night I became aware of Star Wars Connect, the video game. Have you guys heard of this? It's news to me. <laughs> okay, so like, this is like a game that came out in 2012 for Xbox where you could basically, you know, get the Connect sensor and then they have little games where you like use your body movement instead of using a controller. Is this the one with the Han Solo song? Games. Yes, oh I, my I gosh. saw or, I heard the Han Solo song for the first time last night. I'm solo, I'm Han Solo, I'm Han Solo, I'm Han Solo, Solo. I've been <laughs> listening to it non-stop. I like, used to listen to that song Literally 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. This is great. I love from it so much. <laughs> from Balloons to Drones, the podcast about air power, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Star Trek, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, dancing video games. Dancing <laughs> video games. Yeah, we, we, we have covered it all in this episode. It's just the carbonites off me. I'm living life now that I'm free. Yeah. I guess we can, can wrap it up. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we, uh, that we didn't mention? <laughs> you guys didn't want to talk about Sky Penis. <laughs> <laughs> we can so, if you want. Yeah, so for those of you uh, who are not familiar with uh, what was it, was the original penis gate or sky penis gate for those of you who are unfamiliar uh a couple of months back uh was it a navy air crew that did the the original one yes that was right yeah i think like a year ago it was some crawler pilots and there's actually audio that you can hear of them correct uh uh, i don't yeah i think there i think the audio has been released but there's the the audio has definitely been transcribed. <laughs> so yes, it's, it's out there. <laughs> and so, for those of you that don't know, uh, late breaking news as of today out of Luke Air Force Base, uh, and the Air Force admitted to this. Unlike Roswell, uh, they admitted that there was an accidental drawing of a sky penis today. <laughs> How is it accidental? 
I don't, I don't, uh, want, apparently... I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently... I guess some some things are better left unknown or unsaid. Maybe my understanding it was it was a classic two v two engagement <laughs> that led to the inadvertent drawing of of a sky penis this afternoon. Yeah, and and the other thing that I read was that the picture that was the photo that was floating around. While it did have an object that looked very phallic, um, the Air Force spokeswoman said that if you were to kind of, you know, expand the aperture and sort of zoom out, you would see that there were other, you know, there were other contrails forming in the sky as well. So it, it wasn't it wasn't so clear cut if you had the full view of what was happening. It does it, it it wouldn't necessarily look like a sky penis at that point, allegedly. <laughs> I, I, be, I believe if you go back to the, the classic work uh, by Robert Shaw, Fighter Tactics, uh, which goes into everything from one circle, two circle, uh, high yo-yo, rolling scissors, every classic dogfighting move. I don't think Sky Penis was in there, uh, but I'm going to have to go back and check it out. I, I, everything that I've heard is that Sky Penis is not, there's no tactical, it, it doesn't give you a tactical advantage to draw a penis in the sky, is what I'm told. I guess purely for vanity. Seems debatable. <laughs> <laughs> Seems debatable. Could, the, could, could be advantageous, I don't know. <laughs> There, there's no way we're topping that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, uh, you know, if you want to plug your Twitter, uh, Valerie, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at, at Valerie and Sina on Twitter, um, or you could email me documents, cool stuff, <laughs> scoopy stuff. Please send me things I'm not supposed to have. V and Sina at defensenews.com. Cool. And uh, Brian, where can we find more of you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, and on Facebook. But in all cases, that is at Brian Lastly. All right. And I'm Mike Hankins. You can find me on Twitter at Hankenstein with T-I-E-N. And you can find all of us online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. And if you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloons2drones.com slash contact. And if you'd like to submit an article for us for publication, please do so at balloons2drones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.